Would you pray with me? Lord, as we turn to your scriptures now, we ask that by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the person and work of your son. Lord, we want to be people who continue in the faith and not shift from the hope of the gospel. So God, would you be at work through the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our look through the book of Colossians this morning in chapter 1, so you can leave your Bibles open there. Um, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Zach, and I'm the high school pastor here at College Church, and uh, my family and I, we moved here from Montana last summer to enter into the pastoral residency program here at College Church, and then a few months ago, the church asked us to step into the role of high school pastor, and it's a joy to serve in that role. We have a lot of really great students in our church. If you don't know them personally, we have a lot of students who really love the Lord and want to dedicate their lives to following Him, so thank you for praying for our student ministries and the work that God is doing uh, among our students. It's a joy. Well, as I said, uh, my family and I just moved here from Montana, and uh, we're still recovering in some ways. (laughs) The uh, most rugged thing that we have here in Wheaton is the hill at Northside Park. (laughs) And that's about as good as it gets. But when we lived in Montana, uh, we had some friends of ours who uh, lived out there and who were pastors, uh, a good family, good people, good godly people. And they had a little girl in their family that they had adopted when she was about one year old. And uh, she was quite the character, to say the least. She was about nine or ten when we knew her. And she had a habit of running away from home whenever things were getting uncomfortable for her in the home. She wasn't running away because there was anything particularly bad about the home that she was living in. Um, But for whatever reason, whenever she was emotionally charged, her way of uh, dealing with that is that she would run away from home. And she started doing this when she was like four or five years old. And uh, there was a story one time that she ran away from home after a fight, and she was later found on Main Street selling flowers that she had picked from the neighbor's yard. (laughs) And when she was later asked what she was doing, she said that she was trying to make enough money to buy an ice cream cone. So which in some sense I guess you've got to appreciate the entrepreneurial spirit a little bit, but a little misguided. Um, as an adopted little girl, she had been through a lot, and so obviously uh, she was in need of a lot of grace and patience um, to instruct her that running away wasn't the answer to her issue. And you can just imagine her parents feeling uh, that the situation was very ironic, that here was this little girl Uh, who had been adopted into this family, and she had been given uh, an amazing home, amazing parents. She was in a much better situation, particularly in comparison to the fact that if she had never been adopted, uh, the, the, the contrast was so stark between her situations. And so you can imagine her parents feeling... Uh, as they, as they thought about how to deal with this with her, just feeling like, I, I don't understand what this little girl thinks she is going to find if she runs away from this home. 
In our family, she has uh, found great parents. In our family, uh, she is well provided for. When she leaves our house, when she runs away, where else is she going to go? Ever since the book of Colossians was written, God's people have been tempted to run away from the gospel. And what the Apostle Paul gives us in this morning's passage is he tries to help God's people see the thing that's going to keep us faithful to the end in our pursuit to follow Christ, the thing that's going to keep us from running away from home is when we realize how good it is that we have it in Jesus Christ. In this morning's passage, the language of this passage is, is just so magnificent. It's so cosmic. It's so huge. Uh, this week as I was thinking about it, I was even just thinking, how do you even use words to talk about what the Apostle Paul describes in Colossians 1, 15 to 23? So I pray that this morning that you guys would be encouraged once again as believers, as God's people, to realize who, who it is that we have in Jesus Christ, how amazing he is And how amazing uh, what he has done for us on the cross, what that has accomplished for us. Because when we realize those things, that is what is going to keep us from running away from the gospel. So if you have your text here, Colossians chapter 1, the way that the passage breaks down is uh, verses 15 to 20. Paul reminds us of how astounding Jesus is. Specifically, he shows us who Jesus is in relationship to creation to the church and the new creation, and to God himself. And then in verses 21 to 23, the Apostle Paul gives us three wonderful insights into what Christ has accomplished for his people by dying on the cross. So firstly, who is it that the believer has in Jesus Christ? What is it that makes him so astounding? If you look at the text, uh, there's several things that are happening here, and we won't have time to address all of it, but one of the things that will pop out Uh, as you read through it, is this little phrase, he is. He is. So in in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, what we see is is very clearly this passage of Scripture is trying to tell us something about the identity of Jesus Christ. And if you keep reading through, you'll also notice uh, kind of this sweeping language. The phrase, all things, is used uh, five times in this passage. Uh, The word everything is used there in verse 18. And then in verse 19, you see the little phrase, All the fullness. And so uh, this passage makes very clear um, as it's going to compare Jesus to creation, the church and new creation, and to God himself. It makes it very clear that there's something about Jesus that makes him so grand and wonderful that we need to be able to see. And so the way that this passage specifically does that, uh, first off is by by comparing Jesus to creation. You can see halfway through verse 15, Uh, God's word says this, he is, Jesus is, the firstborn of all creation. A quick side note, firstborn uh, does not mean that Jesus was created, but in the sense that in comparison to the rest of creation, Jesus holds supreme uh, rank or status over everything else, the way a firstborn son in other cultures holds rank over his siblings. That's what the text means when it says firstborn. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
This is Jesus' relationship with creation. Jesus Christ is the Lord over it all. As the incarnate Son of God, Jesus is the linchpin of creation. He holds it all together. He is the meaning and significance by which all created things ultimately point. So the wonder of space and other universes and galaxies and distant stars, which I don't know if you uh, are up on your uh, scientific research lately, but scientists today are telling us that they have found stars in, in the galaxies that are a thousand times bigger than the sun of our solar system. It's amazing. It's amazing. So to the bigness of creation, and even down to the details, the scriptures say uh, that our Father in heaven uh, provides food for sparrows, and he adorns flowers uh, in a beautiful... There's over a half a million different types of flowers in the world. I looked it up this week. That's what you get to do when you're sermon prepping. 500,000 different types of flowers. And our Heavenly Father, uh, he has spun them together and, and made them all beautiful. And here we have Jesus Christ, who the scriptures say is literally the one by whom, through whom, and for whom these things were made. This is the Jesus that believers have. As the hymn puts it, praise to the Lord above all things, so wondrously reigning sheltering you under his wings and so gently sustaining. What believers have in Jesus is the one who holds preeminence, the supreme rank over creation. Secondly, you continue on in God's word, uh, Jesus and his relationship with the church and new creation. Uh, You can see here in verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As the head of the church, Jesus is the one who directs and controls the church. If a church does not ultimately acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their highest leader and authority, it is not a true church at all. As the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, Jesus is the resurrected one who is the author and source of this movement called the church and new creation. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, there would be no church. And it would be absolutely ridiculous for us to gather on Sunday morning and worship him uh, as if he were over all things. Because if he didn't uh, rise from the dead, then obviously he wouldn't be over all things because he wouldn't have been over death. He wouldn't be preeminent. Death, in a sense, would have a higher place over him, so it would be untrue to say that Jesus is preeminent over all. But the reason why the church is a place where Jesus Christ is taken so seriously and is in fact literally worshipped above all other things is because we believe that he overcame the one thing that every man, woman, and child has never and never will be able to overcome, and that is the grave. For all mankind, there is a finality to the grave. Uh, There's this other side element to death that we don't fully understand. Um, there's, you know, the one line in the movie Bambi. After like the most tragic 90 seconds 
in the history of all movies? I watched it again this week. I watched that clip, and I was just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe we showed this movie to our children. <laughs> and of course, I just moved from Montana, you know, where they, they shoot deer. Sorry. <laughs> I may or may not have horns on my wall at home. I, I, won't, I won't say. <clears throat> but you have this scene where Bambi is with her mom, right? And then all of a sudden, you... You know, you hear the, oh my goodness, you know. And then Bambi, for like the next 60 seconds of the movie, is wandering through the woods and the caves and, you know, calling out for mom. It's just like, oh my goodness, you're crying and weeping. Like. And then all of a sudden, as Bambi's walking through the forest, you know, she sees this silhouette up on, on the hill and, uh, of this stag, just this huge stag. And he comes through the clouds, you know, and, and he kind of walks up to Bambi and he says, my son, your mother can't be with you anymore. It's like, oh gosh, poor Bambi. But this is what death is like. This is why when the doctor is speaking to you and he uses the word cancer, it feels like a nuclear bomb goes off in your life. And it's not the cancer that scares anybody, but it's the finality of the grave that does. What's going to happen to me when this is all over? What's going to happen if I lose my life? In his resurrection, being the firstborn from the dead, being the head of the church, the start of this movement of people who are worshipers of God in Jesus' name, Jesus has shown himself to be more powerful than even death itself. Believer, this is who you have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is over all creation. He's preeminent. He's over death itself. He's over the the church and this new creation that he's starting. And finally, the passage shows us how Jesus relates to God the Father. Um, And I'll just say a quick word that Jesus' relationship uh, to God the Father is the very thing that immediately separates him, not only from every other person who ever lived, but also uniquely separates him from would-be saviors in other religions. Though he was a man, Jesus Christ was also fully God. He was God's son. He was fully God. You see this in verse 15 and verse 19. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You just get so used to thinking about that sometimes. But this week I, I was praying, I was like, Lord, remind me, remind me again who it is that I have in Jesus Christ this week. I, I, I want to see him clearly. I want to know him for who he is. I want to truly have a grasp of him this week, Lord. Would, would you show me again? And I was, was praying and I was blown away once again just thinking, in Jesus Christ, the Christian church, has God become a man? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Uh, And this, of course, is is what the Christmas story is all about, with apologies to chestnuts roasting by the open fire, uh, which I don't know who does that. (laughs) It sounds cozy, but it sounds really weird. This is what the Christmas story is all about, the incarnation. God himself dwelling among us. Listen to how one preacher put it. This is is so beautiful. 
infinite and an infant, eternal and yet born of a woman, almighty and yet hanging on a woman's breast, supporting a universe and yet needing to be carried in his mother's arms. You get goosebumps. King of angels and yet the reputed son of Joseph, heir of all things and yet the carpenter's despised son. Oh, the wonder of Christmas. When the believer is tempted to run away from the gospel, having a very clear picture of who it is that they have in Jesus Christ, this is going to be the thing that's going to keep us following him. The thing that makes us Christians today is the same thing that will keep us as Christians for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years of our lives is having a very clear picture about who it is that we actually have. The preeminent one. Preeminent over creation, over the church and new creation, over every category you can imagine. Jesus Christ has no rival and no equal. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. If Jesus Christ is not enough for the church, then where else is the church going to go? This is who we have in Jesus Christ. In verses 21 to 23, this is what he has accomplished for us through his death on the cross. The scriptures say, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now the Bible uses several word pictures to describe Jesus' accomplishment on the cross for sinners. Uh, The Bible uses the word justification sometimes. You see that word. And that is courtroom uh, language. Sometimes the scriptures use the word redemption, and that is marketplace language. But when the Bible uses the word reconciliation or reconciled, it's giving us a relational image. Reconciliation paints the picture of taking something that is relationally broken and putting it back together again. Believers had a broken relationship with God and it was through Jesus' death uh, that he was able to, it was able to be put back together. Through the death of Christ, he has reconciled us to God. Now this type of language is uh, important for us today uh, because we all know what broken relationships can feel like, especially in a day and age in our culture uh, when relationships are being broken at an all-time high. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that we experience the brokenness of relationships. Uh, for those of you who are parents, um, you can imagine the pain that a parent goes through when they experience a broken relationship with a child. Um, For one reason or another, maybe a child has grown cold or distant. And as a parent, you feel deep 
pain from that and, and you have something inside of you that just longs to be able to be reconciled, if, if they would just come back, if they, could, if they would just come home to me, we could have this warm relationship again. The longing for reconciliation. Perhaps some of you are in the midst of a relationally strained or broken marriage right now. Maybe you're finding yourself um, treating each other very differently than you did on your wedding day. A broken relationship with a spouse is a very, very deep pain. You begin to wonder, is it possible, is it possible, could we even imagine a day again where we would actually smile at one another the the day uh, that we did when we said I do? Is that even possible anymore? Oh, the, the longing for reconciliation in the midst of the pain that comes from broken relationships. This is an important uh, word picture for us today. And this is the power of reconciliation. Now the thing that makes our reconciliation to God through the death of Christ so amazing is three things. First, you see here in the text, God was not the cause of our broken intimacy with him. We were. You see this in the text in verse 21. It says, uh, we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were the ones who were doing evil deeds. You'll notice that the word hostile uh, gives this warlike imagery as if we were actually trying to fight God. And when you see the word in mind, it carries this idea that the main center of our hostility against God is not one that's external, but it's actually one that's internal, which should tell us that it's actually possible on the outside to act good-natured towards God and the things of God, but on the inside not have a single drop of love towards him. To be a Christian, to be converted, means uh, something has changed on the inside. Where once you used to not have any interest in God at all, where once you uh, used to want to live your life as if God did not exist, now all of a sudden, because you have been reconciled to him by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden you want to come to church on Sunday. And you want to sing. And you want to give your tithes and offering. You want to do those things because all of a sudden uh, you have this newfound relationship with the Lord. This is what it means to be reconciled. This is what it means to be converted. Being a Christian uh, isn't, isn't smiling to other people at church on Sunday. You guys know this. It's not what being a Christian is. Something on the inside has changed. Hostility has been replaced with peace. Broken relationship has been restored. So it's amazing that God would reconcile us through the death of Christ because it wasn't him who caused the brokenness to begin with. It was us. The second thing you see about God's amazing reconciliation here is that God was the initiator of our reconciliation. In verse 22, the scriptures say, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. God initiated this. Um, Sometimes in marriage, maybe this is just me, but sometimes in marriage uh, when the relationship is feeling a little damaged, the intimacy uh, is a little off kilter, uh, and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, 
If this thing's going to be restored, then I'd better go make amends, you know. And, and so sometimes, you know, you get the courage to be the one, right? You know, you're both giving each other the cold shoulder, different rooms, uh, not talking to each other. And, and, and when you get the courage, you say, okay, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one. I'm, I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make amends. And so you go to your spouse. You say, baby, I'm so sorry. Um, I was in the wrong. Will you forgive me? And then all of a sudden, the strangest thing starts to happen. And you start to feel a little proud about the fact <laughs> that you were the one who initiated. Proud about humility. <laughs> what is that? The reason why our reconciliation with God leaves no room for human boasting is not only because we were the ones who broke the relationship in the first place, but also because God was the one who initiated reconciliation with us. When Jesus was a baby lying in the manger, it was God initiating his divine plan of reconciliation The incarnation was about God saying, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to be the one that makes this right. This is amazing. We were the ones who broke the the relationship. God was the one who initiated it. And finally, our reconciliation with God is so amazing because that which was broken has been not restored, but fully restored fully restored. You can see what the scriptures say here in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now there's some debate as to whether this means our final judgment uh, or if it means our present calling to pursue holiness in our relationship with God. You live your life before God pursuing holiness and these types of things. Um, And I tend to agree with some commentators who who say that it's both. Because of the reconciliation that we have with God through Christ's death on the day of judgment, we will stand before the holy of holies, separated from sin, totally pure, and no accusations will be able to be laid upon us. What an amazing thing. You just imagine, you can't imagine standing before the throne of God on that day. And, you know, Isaiah had his experience in Isaiah 6. He, you know, he responds on when, when he was in that moment. Woe is me, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean, of, of unclean lips and I'm undone. And here th- this text is saying that, that sinners who trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for them, On the day when they stand before the Lord, they will actually be holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's going to be like, it's going to be like we're standing before God, and and it's exactly where we're supposed to be. Not uncomfortable, not wondering, should I be here, should I not be here, but but this is exactly where we're supposed to be. Fully restored. Reconciled. The work of Christ on the cross for us is amazing. We broke the relationship. 
God initiated with us in Christ. Jesus alone has fully restored us to him. This is the accomplishment of the cross of Christ. Believers, church, do you know how good it is that you have it in him? If being reconciled to God through Christ isn't enough for us to have a deep and meaningful spiritual life, to have deep communion with the God of all creation, then where else are we going to go? Our passage ends with the charge this morning that we've been talking about all morning in verse 23. The scriptures say, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The death of Christ and who Christ is um, doesn't apply to all people. This is something that every single person has to embrace by faith. Faith is the agent that God uh, has, has given to us to allow us to believe that Jesus is who he is and that his death has accomplished what it says uh, it has accomplished. And so I just want to ask us as we close this morning, do you believe that this is who Jesus is? And do you believe that reconciliation through his death is what he has accomplished for you on the cross? Receive him. Trust in him. He is all you need. The thing that's going to keep us in the years ahead, the days and months and weeks and years ahead, from turning away from the gospel is remembering how good it is we have it in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And as we do that, we will remember that there is nowhere else that we need to go. Let's pray. Father, what, what are words unless your spirit is at work? Lord, how can we talk about these things unless you literally open our eyes? God, we are asking as your people this morning, would you help us to believe that these things are true? God, would you help us to see uh, the weight of these things, Father? Would you help us to know as believers how good it is that we have in Jesus Christ? And Lord, if there's anyone here among us uh, who struggles to embrace Jesus Christ or to, to see him for who he really is. God, I pray that you would be at work showing them that Jesus Christ is preeminent over all and through his death on the cross, he has reconciled his people back to you. God, we pray that you would be doing this work and using your word in Jesus' name. Amen.